Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, where we have the third lesson that I would like to give you from our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, and this morning, like last Sunday, we'll deal with just four verses, lest we lose their importance in moving on into his first specific lesson. When we look at Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7, we can see that the body of his sermon doesn't really begin until verse 21, which is continued throughout the next two chapters with lesson after lesson after lesson on the righteous standard that he is setting for his kingdom. But there's three lessons leading up to that, and we've dealt with the first one in verses 1 through 12, which are the Beatitudes and descriptions of the character of the true citizens of the kingdom of heaven and the true followers of Jesus Christ. Then in verses 13 through 16, which we looked at last Sunday, I hope to our prophet that we ought to let our light so shine before men because the Lord wants us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world in living the righteousness and the truth and the wisdom of his gospel before all others. Now we come to verses 17 through 20 where he is still taking away any arguments that his enemies would raise against him and preparing us to go into verse 21 and the lessons that this sermon contains. But let's read these first four verses and then let's consider them. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Amen and amen. Amen. Our Lord, like our brother Paul, because both spoke by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, would answer objections before they would even give their lesson. They knew where the hearts of men would go. They knew what slanderous objections had been raised against the gospel. And so both Jesus and Paul liked to head those arguments off before they could distract a hearer. You know, the Apostle Paul would often say, Thou wilt say then unto me, And he's raising an objection that somebody would have against the gospel that he was preaching. And so the Lord Jesus Christ here is doing the same thing. Think not, knowing that they would be prone to think something, he's going to correct those thoughts. Think not that I am come to destroy the law. We need to remember that Jesus was addressing the Jews. Jesus was a minister of the circumcision. He was a preacher to Israel. Therefore, he is addressing a crowd of people that had been trained all their life to believe that they had the law of God, 
which they did, and that that law was incredibly important, which it was, but they had been taught it by the scribes and the lawyers and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and it had been corrupted somewhat. But they still understood that the scriptures that they had, 39 books of our 66, they didn't have the 27 of the New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament, that those scriptures were very important. Now along comes Jesus of Nazareth from a town they despised, from a background they despised, without any authority from the ministerial fellowship to preach. All he had was the baptism of John the Baptist to justify him preaching. He wasn't a scribe. He wasn't a lawyer. He hadn't joined the Pharisees, and he wouldn't join the Sadducees. So by what authority doest thou these things? And on what basis do you teach what you're teaching? And remember, his gospel was radically different than what the scribes and the Pharisees taught. That's why when we get to the end of this sermon, it says, and when it came to pass that Jesus ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. Because he taught them as one having authority, something they hadn't heard in a long time. So keep that in mind. Here comes the Lord Jesus Christ. He's got a large audience. He's gone into a mountain. He has set himself, and he's teaching his disciples that are Jews who would object to any movements against the law of God. Any effort to try to overthrow the law of Moses would have been rejected with a closed mind, stopped up ears. They would not listen to such a thing. In Acts chapter 21, we have the Apostle Paul coming back to Jerusalem after many years away. And when he comes to Jerusalem, he's met by the apostles that are there, and they ask him to do them a favor. Would you go in and finish up a vow with a few men that are taking a vow in the temple so that the Jews that are in this place that are still zealous of the law will not believe the rumors they've heard about you that you've gone everywhere preaching the Jews against keeping the law? I hope you're all familiar with that. Instead of turning you to it, I want you to know how that it was a problem during the time of Reformation to keep Jews straight. The time of Reformation lasted 40 years. From John the Baptist's arrival on the scene to the destruction of Jerusalem. And during that 40 year period, you had the Old Covenant running alongside the New Covenant. You had them both operating. You had Jews still zealous of the law. But you know, the Lord took care of that in 70 AD because he took away the priesthood. He took away the temple. He took away the altars. He took away the city. He took away Mount Zion. There was nothing left for them to do. And so the old covenant passed away completely. He had completely shaken heaven and earth and the old covenant went away. But it was a problem. And so I give you that preface, that introduction to think about the Jews that are sitting there listening. Here comes a man without authority. He's not a priest. Not from the tribe of Levi. Here comes a man that's not a Pharisee or a Sadducee. He's a carpenter's son. How pitiful. And so he says, think not that I am come to destroy the law. I hope you understand that. When he says that, they would have been tempted to think that. And their leaders were teaching them that. That here Jesus was attempting to overthrow the law of Moses. You know, one of the accusations raised against him was he preacheth against this place. And so the Apostle Paul that he was preaching against the temple, that he was making light of the temple, when he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. 
And you know what difference, what he was, what he meant by that is he meant the temple of his body. And so we come to Matthew 5.17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. My ministry is not to change the law. My ministry is not to change the prophets. I'm not coming to teach a new religion. I'm coming to fulfill the one you've known all your lives. I'm here as the object of that Old Testament. The Old Testament that you've read, you've read the words of Moses about the seed of the woman. I am the seed of the woman. You've read the words of Moses as he transcribed what took place at Jacob's deathbed. That the scepter would not depart from Judah until Shiloh came. I am Shiloh. You read the words of Moses that God would raise up a prophet like unto himself that could speak to you instead of the place of God. I am that prophet. I didn't come to destroy the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. And praise his great and glorious name. We have the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament in the Lord Jesus Christ. You read in the Psalms that David said, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I am the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Oh, brethren, and these people did not fully understand the message they were getting on the Sermon on the Mount, but you and I do. We are most blessed. When I prayed and thanked the Lord that we live on this side of the cross, this side of John, and this side of the new covenant, I hope you're thankful for that. Otherwise, these words would be dark and obscure to us. Look at the apostle in Hebrews 3 and 4, laboring and laboring to explain what Psalm 95 must have meant when it referred to a rest that was yet in the future. He had to go back for a Jewish mind and say, it's not the rest of the seventh day. Because that was so important to them. It's not the rest of Canaan. Because Joshua didn't get them the rest. Because David wrote after Joshua. There remaineth yet a rest to the people of God. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of the New Testament. And you have it. And you understand it. And you partake of its blessings. We are very blessed. Jesus did not come to destroy the law and the prophets as they falsely accused him. He came to fulfill them. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ fulfilled the Old Testament prophets in every way you want to imagine. He was the first one to properly interpret them. He was the first one to properly live the law. He was the first one to bear the full punishment of the law. But most of all, he was the object of the law. Every shadowy picture that they presented of some great deliverance that was coming, all that blood that was shed pointing to a better blood, he was the fulfillment of it. And in that, that is the main sense of verse 17. I didn't come to change the religion that Moses gave you. I came to be the fulfillment of it. I am the object of it. It taught about me. And here I am. Do not think that I came to change it. Look at Luke, holding your hand there at the Sermon on the Mount. Turn over to Luke 24 just for a moment to see the the beauty of the fact that I'm telling you right now that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Luke 24. What timing. You know, Luke 24 is about the resurrection. I didn't plan this timing. You know me better than that. 
If there's one Sunday of the year I don't want to think about the resurrection, it's this one. But I will think about the resurrection every Sunday because Sunday is really the Lord's Day. It's not the day dedicated to the worship of the Son, which is what our word in English still reminds us. We're here on the Lord's Day because it's the day the Lord appeared to his disciples, I am risen. Luke 24, at verse 25, he's walking on the road to Emmaus with a couple of disciples. Then he said unto them, Luke 24, 25, Then he said unto them, O fools, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things, and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses... And all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Oh, they got that sermon in detail that morning. You know what they said about that sermon later? Our hearts did burn within us. We've never understood the scriptures the way we did that day. It was so beautifully presented to us, our hearts burned with the glory of the presentation of Jesus Christ opening Everything from Genesis 3.15 to, guess what, the last chapter. I'll send Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the Lord come. And there's Jesus spoken of throughout the Old Testament, and he explained it to them. Then come to verse 44. He's now with the rest of the disciples. And he said unto them, Luke 24.44, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms, concerning me. There's the three divisions of the Old Testament. The poetry, the prophets, and Moses. Moses, the Psalms, and the prophets. Jesus lists all three, and said, I told you all these things while I was with you, that they're all written about me, and I've told you these things, and they've come to pass, and here I am, and now I'm going back to heaven. Notice in this chapter, to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, then to all the disciples, I am the fulfillment. The things that were written aforetime, I'm not changing them or destroying them. I'm the fulfillment of them. And therefore, many of them stopped because the fulfillment was here. Why would you need a shadow of something when the reality is here? Come on, please. Don't take me back into Sabbath worship of the Jews. I have to deal with that every week of my life. Don't I, webmaster? Every week of my life, I have Seventh-day Adventists writing and saying, you're so good on the subjects of Christmas and Easter and the holidays, don't you know that you still have one to get rid of? And that's Sunday worship. You're You're worshiping on the day dedicated to the worship of the sun. Sunday. So I write back and say, You're worshiping on the day dedicated to Saturn. Saturn's day. Saturday. I write back and I say, why do you want to be under the old covenant? I'm a New Testament Christian. Thank the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you want to go back under the law? Paul said it was beggarly. I want to be part of the Lord Jesus Christ religion. No one in the New Testament worshipped on Saturday. Not a believing Christian of the New Testament. The only time Paul preached in the synagogues on the Sabbath day was because that's where he had to go to get his audience. Don't ever be led astray by the Seventh-day Adventists. That all started from an afflicted little woman, afflicted in body, soul, and spirit, named Ellen Harmon, 
who became Ellen G. White when she married a man named White. And she's the founder of the Seventh-day Adventists. She had a vision that she went to heaven. And she looked into the Ark of the Covenant, and there were the two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments. But the commandment to keep the Sabbath day was highlighted with a glowing light. And there they go. There they go. That's where it came from. And she stole that from a group of people called the Seventh-day Baptists that she ran into when she was a teenager. All of that is well documented, and you can read about it for as long as you can read about Seventh-day Adventists. You know, the Internet provides all that information for you, but we are not going back under something that was strictly Jewish. Methuselah, Enoch, Noah never heard of the Sabbath day. That was a Jewish day. It started with Moses, and it ended with John the Baptist. Because it was a shadow of things to come, Paul told us in Colossians 2. And guess what the reality was that cast the shadow? The Lord Jesus Christ himself. The works of God were finished and he sat down. Brother, we could go on and on with that. Let's not go back. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ saying, The law of Moses, in verse 44, The prophets and the Psalms, They wrote things about me, and I've come and fulfilled them. And if you would have remembered everything I've taught you for the three and a half years I've been with you, I told you these things. Let's come back to Matthew 5. That's what verse 17 means for us. Think not that I am come to destroy the law. Don't let anyone tell you that I've come to change the law. That law that was given by God on Mount Sinai, that was given to prophets by inspiration. David wrote Psalms because God, the Holy Spirit, indicted The words to him. I read in Psalm 45, my heart is indicting a good matter. You know, I've read books about inspiration. They always want to call it the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. Well, since they don't use those words and neither do I, they don't know what it really means and neither do I. You know, when they hear about the doctrine of inspiration as we understand it, they they call it the mechanical dictation theory and make fun of it. But when I read Psalm 45 and it says, My heart is indicting a good matter. Do you know what that word indicting means? Dictation. God dictated the words that are written down in Scripture. You say, but I can see some personality differences from book to book. If you can see a personality difference from book to book, do you think that your God is able to dictate words to individual writers that might reflect their personality? Come on! Is that too hard for your God? It's not too hard for mine. My heart is indicting a good matter. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Now that sounds like a transcriber to me. Sounds like he's taking dictation from God. That's Psalm 45. And yes, that is my favorite psalm. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. And it's a great, it's a wonderful psalm about my king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he got it by inspiration of God that dictated the words to him, and I'm thankful for that. I don't think very much of David leaked into Psalm 45. Verse 18 of Matthew 5, we want to to explain the text. For verily, I say unto you, verily means of a truth. What I'm about to tell you is very important and very true, and not to be gainsaid or any attempt made to overthrow it. For verily, I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So far from thinking that I am come to change the law, I am come to fulfill every jot and tittle of it, and not a jot and a tittle 
will go unfulfilled. Heaven and earth may pass away, but not one jot or one tittle of the law of Moses or of the prophets or of the Psalms is going to go unfulfilled. I'm here to fulfill it. To help us understand the the order of these words, let's look at how Luke recorded the same thing in Luke chapter 16 and verse 17. Luke 16, 17. It helps sometimes when you're reading the Gospels to go read all three accounts. It'll help shed light on many difficulties. Luke 16 and verse 17. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. Oh, beautiful. How easy is it for heaven and earth to pass? Has it passed in your lifetime? Any worry about it? Did it pass in your parents' lifetime? I guess it didn't or you wouldn't be here. Can heaven or earth pass? I want to tell you, God appealed to heaven and earth on a number of occasions by saying, if you can undo the covenant that I've made with the heaven and the earth, then you can undo my covenant with you. And he appealed to that because you cannot undo God's covenant of the heaven and the earth. There are 24-hour days and 365-day years because God ordained it. There's springtime and harvest. There's fall and winter and summer and hot and cold and all the seasons because God ordained those seasons. And you can just as soon as undo them as you can undo one tittle of the law of God as it speaks concerning Jesus Christ. Back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 18. For verily... Do not think for a second that I am come to destroy the law for verily of a truth without any opportunity for gainsaying it on a sure foundation of absolute truth. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my word is not going to pass away and the fulfillment is going to be fulfilled of every jot and tittle of the Old Testament. Do not think that I am come to destroy the law. Now, this verse here, Matthew 5.18, is not really, primarily, a verse for Bible preservation. Now, we look at it secondarily for that, because it's speaking of the jots and tittles of the law, and not a single one of them will pass before they're fulfilled. And we understand that, but his main lesson is that every single, it's the integrity of God's Word, rather than the preservation of it in this verse. The preservation's a secondary thought that you can certainly pull out of it, because he's saying not one of them is going to pass away. But the main lesson is, is the integrity of God's word. Everything it said is going to come to pass. And look what it says, a jot or a tittle. Now, a jot or a tittle had become a proverb in the Jews, a little idiom in the Jews' language for the smallest things. A jot is, is, the, is a Hebrew word coming into Greek in the New Testament and then coming into English, and it means it's yod. It's one of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. But now, which letter do you think it might be? The biggest or the smallest? It's the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Yod. Analogous to our I, but they're not really analogous. But it's like our I, just a little tiny letter. It's the smallest letter when you are writing out the Hebrew alphabet. A tittle is just a little tiny accent mark put over letters and over words to indicate what that letter or word is to be read as. You know, we have a little accent mark. We have a little tiny apostrophe that indicates when a word is in its possessive case. And so they had a tittle. And so the Lord is saying, not the smallest letter, nor the smallest marking over a letter is going to fail from the law until all is fulfilled. 
I like, I like that. Amen. I like that. Not the small, and you know what? I can come into the Word of God and seeing Jesus and Paul arguing doctrine in the New Testament as if they believe that. But you know, I can't find anyone like that today. Hardly anyone like that's left. I see Rick Warren using anywhere from 7 to 15 Bible versions. His book, The Purpose Driven Church, The Purpose Driven Life, has 15 Bible versions in it. Do you know what? He picks a Bible version whenever it gives him the words that he wants. There's only, oh, I don't want the words that I want. I'd change a few of them. I want the words that God gave me. And I believe every single one of them. Did the Lord Jesus Christ argue from single words? Before Abraham was, I am. Did Paul argue from single letters? He saith seed, not seeds. In Galatians 3.16, you believe your Bibles right down to the jots and the tittles, even though you've never written a jot or a tittle. We have them in our own language, and God's preserved His Word in our language and proven it by fruit. Matthew 5.18, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise, no wise, no way, impossible, no men, devils or angels, are going to move God's Word without me fulfilling everything stated in there about me. Everything the Old Testament pointed to is going to be fulfilled, and in no wise is anyone or any spirit going to undo it. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for telling us. And do you know what? It's been fulfilled. He is here. He's sitting at the right hand of God. He is the fulfillment of the Passover Lamb. He is the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement. He is a high priest that's better than any priest that ever existed under Moses and Aaron. He is the fulfillment of all that, brethren. He's opened unto us a new and living way. We don't have to worry about a veil separating us from God because the Lord Jesus Christ has gone before us and opened that way. We can read Job saying, I know that my Redeemer liveth. We've met the Redeemer. He says, I know that he shall stand the latter day upon the earth. We know exactly how he'll do it. We know how he's already done it in one of his comings. Brethren, we know the fulfillment of every jot and tittle. The Lord has been very good to put us in this generation. Did you know he made you that choice? He made that choice for you? He could have left you in Israel. And while they had many blessings, they didn't have any compared to ours. Because Paul said, he's given us better promises. And a better covenant. And better benefits. We have them in the New Testament. Let's come to verse 19. Whosoever, therefore, because of what I've just told you in verses 17 and 18, that I did not come to destroy, and that not a jot or a tittle shall pass, whosoever, therefore, shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for such a simple way that we might be ranked great in the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall break. He is still dealing with a slanderous accusation made against him that he was coming to break the law of God, to destroy it, to break it. And he said, oh no, I came to fulfill it, and not a jot or a tittle is going to disappear without it being fulfilled, and therefore I will apply what I've just told you My religion is this, whosoever, 
any member of my kingdom that neglects to keep and obey the smallest commandment of the Old Testament and teaches men not to keep it is least in the kingdom of heaven. He will be measured as the poorest teacher in my kingdom. But the man that does them and teaches men to do them will be great in the kingdom of heaven. So contrary to what the Jews thought of him and what the Jewish leaders said of him was the Lord Jesus Christ saying, the smallest commandment in the Old Testament is of great importance to me. And for a man to be great in my kingdom, he must do and teach that commandment. This verse should humble us. This verse should sober us. And yet this verse should excite us because of what it says. How important is it to us to pay attention to even the least of His commandments? I hope it's very important. You cannot go through the Word of God and say, well, I don't like that one. You can't go through the Word of God and say, I think that's a little extreme. Go ahead and call me names if you wish. I want to fulfill that verse. I want to fulfill Matthew 5.19. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so to break them as well, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Let that humble us to the word of God. Whatever God says, I want to do it, even if it's the smallest commandment, the smallest detail. Let me pay attention. And we know, brethren, we know from reading our Bibles that God truly does care about the details. Do you remember that Moses changed a little detail? God said, speak. Moses used God's rod on God's rock and got water for God's people. But it cost him a great deal because he didn't speak to that rock. David wanted to honor the Lord and threw a huge parade. You've been, I've been over this so many times with you, but it's for you. It's for you. Don't forget Moses used the right rock, and he used God's rod, and he got water. But he smote the rock instead of speaking to it, and Moses never made it to Canaan, even though he begged the Lord for it. Moses was a very faithful man. He was kept in the wilderness because of that one offense. David threw a great parade for the Ark of the Covenant. Remember? A huge parade. He called all the leaders of Israel together for it. It was huge. It was wonderful. And he had a new ox cart built for it to move the Ark of the Covenant. But God didn't care about his new ox cart. And God didn't care about his spirit that was bubbling with enthusiasm for worshiping God. Because that Ark of the Covenant was to be carried on the shoulders of priests by the staves through the hole, through the rings that were on that Ark of the Covenant. That's a detail-conscious God. And when he teaches us his details and he brings them to our understanding, we are supposed to obey them. Now, while I'm, while I, I'm, I'm saying that, I also want to remind you that when he doesn't bring them to our understanding, he is merciful so that it can be said of a king like Asa that though he did not remove the high places, his heart was perfect with God. That is a merciful Heavenly Father that is detail conscious. But you know what the problem is in this church? We can't use Asa because he's shown us too much. Does that, do you like verse 19? I like verse 19. When the Lord tells me how to be great in his kingdom, and I don't mean before men. I mean to be great in his estimation. Right. Do you want to be great in his estimation? 
the least of his commandments are important. Every day, when we are advertising like we are right now, I have to put up with accusations that we are being far too picky and that we have forgotten the love of Jesus. Over and over and over this week I've had to deal with, have you forgotten that the Bible says, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself? Get, get a life. This morning, you know, I wake up to get a life. Because we're trying to stand for the smaller commandments. They call them smaller. I don't even know that I would. I would say pagan worship in the name of Jesus Christ is not a small commandment. I would say with 2 Corinthians six fourteen through 17 touch not the unclean thing is not a small commandment. And so we're trying to keep those. But we live in a generation that all they know about Jesus is something they call the love of Jesus. You know, when I read Matthew, I can't find it. When I read Mark, I can't find it. When I read Luke, I can't find it. When I read Acts, I can't find it. The only place they can even find the word attached to Jesus is in the Gospel of John. And when you read John and then you read John's epistles, you have a pretty good understanding of what was meant by them. And it's not Jesus teaching us that all we're supposed to overlook every offense against the doctrine of the Bible in the name of love. We do love our neighbors. In the way the Bible tells us to love them. The whole world is going against Matthew 5.19. Just like it was in Jesus' day. Where do we want to stand as a church? I'll tell you where I'm going to stand. And I don't care if I have to worship by myself. And that doesn't mean that you're opposed to me. I hope you're not. I hope that you understand, though, this verse. It tells us the least commandment. You know, no matter how small you might think a matter to be, if it's a matter that would help us serve God better and please Him more and line up more perfectly with the Word of God, let's do it. You know, why is there within us, or why is there within any of you, or within any church, that desire to see, well, how? listen, that wouldn't be any fun to live that way. I'll tell you, the only fun there is in life is to live it God's way. That is, that is, a, that is a lie from the devil whenever you say that. You never give up anything by obeying the Word of God. Never. Except sin, dysfunction, pain, and trouble. Frustration and discontentment in life. Amen. Give yourself to the Word of God. The, even the least commandment is important. You know, there is within us that desire to see how close I can get to the world. Because I like some of the things of the world. Rather than lining ourselves up with the Word of God and forgetting the world. I'll tell you, one day soon you're going to forget the world, and you're going to wish you could have come back and relived your life not so close to it. The least commandment. There's teachers involved in verse 19, aren't there? We live in the perilous times of the last days. You hear it from me every Sunday, every proverb, every time I write you, I know. The perilous times of the last days. A brand of Christianity based on compromise. And the Apostle Paul got down to verse 5, where he ended his summary of the perilous times of the last days, and he said, from such turn away. Get away from teachers that are modifying the Word of God and trying to make it compatible with the world. We have got to put our feet, feet down and put up our hands and dig our heels in and stand against the encroachment that goes on in every part of our lives. The Satan in the world is trying to take us down away from the high and holy standard of God's Word. And let's not let them. Let's not let the world do that to us at all. 
How in the world can you be too picky, too extreme, or too hard if you stick with Scripture? Because Jesus said, even the little things of my word are important. And I'll grade you based on them. I won't grade you on the big ones. Because the fact that you haven't murdered anybody yet by the overt act doesn't prove a thing to me. How about the little commandments? And so he's going to grade you and me based on Matthew 5.19. And let's pass. Verse 20. For I say unto you. He just keeps building his case. And if anybody thought that he was watering down righteousness, if anyone thought he was compromising by his gospel, no way. Don't think for a minute that I've come to destroy the law. Don't think for a minute that even a jot or a tittle is going to pass away by any means, no wise. Even the least commandment is important to me, and that's how I grade men. And then he comes to verse 20. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. You have no right in the worship of God, nor do you have any right to heaven, if your righteousness doesn't exceed theirs. This is a warning that if your practical righteousness does not exceed the false righteousness of the most conservative religious people of his day, it was not good enough. That's why we have verses like Psalm 15 that we read. A few weeks ago, Psalm 15, where it listed the things that need to be done if you're going to stand in God's holy hill. All of a sudden, the Lord has made a contrast that's going to serve us throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, wait a minute. What was a scribe? Scribe. He copied God's word all day long. Who knew the word of God better than anyone else? Did they know how many yodes there were on a page? Did they know how many tittles there were in a book? If they found a copy of the scriptures with one tittle. Now what's a tittle? Just a little accent mark. One tittle missing. What did they do with that manuscript? Destroyed it. Very dedicated were the scribes. Ezra, we're told in the Bible, was a ready scribe in the law of God. He was able to get up, and was he able to read in the, law, in the book of the law of God distinctly and give the sense? Yes, he was. Jesus said, if your righteousness doesn't exceed the men that know the Bible best, you will in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. How about the Pharisees? Were they a loose group? Were they like the Mormons? Or were the Pharisees like the independent fundamentalist Baptists of our society, of our world? The Bob Jones type Christians. The independent fundamentalist churches that say they stand for the word of God are the most conservative. We don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang around with those that do. We're on our way to heaven. The Pharisees. See, in Acts chapter 26 and verse 5, when the Apostle Paul stood before King Agrippa, he said, King Agrippa, you know all the customs of the Jews, and so I'm glad to stand here this day and testify before you. I was raised a Pharisee, and according to the Pharisee denomination, I served the God of my forefathers, and it was the straightest sect of the Jews' religion. It was the most conservative denomination of the Jews' religion. Jesus picks on those that knew the Bible best, and the most conservative denomination of the Jews' religion, and says, if your righteousness doesn't exceed theirs, you will in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
and he will spend the rest of the sermon telling us what he meant. Because he's going to show us what they did to the law of God. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. He came to interpret it right and to fulfill it. Amen. Let me give you a few examples because this is, this is the foundation for understanding the rest of this sermon. It's right there in that verse. I say unto you, I'm not here to break the law. I'm here to restore it to its lofty position where even the least commandment is important enough that men are graded by how they treat the least commandments. And I'm telling you that if your righteousness isn't well above that of the scribes and Pharisees, you don't have a right to heaven. You make you give no evidence of being a follower of the God of the Bible. Wow! Does he elevate righteousness? And he's going to tell us why. But that's the rest of the sermon. Let me just give you a few examples. They restricted the law's intent. When they read the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. Seventh commandment. We're going to be taught in the next, in this chapter, that they restricted that commandment to the overt, the act, the literal act of a man that's married having sexual intercourse with a, with a woman that he's not married to. The actual act of adultery. But Jesus Christ opened that commandment back up and said that includes even the desire to do so. That includes the lustful thoughts and intents to do so. And that sure broadened the law back out, didn't it? See, they had narrowed it down. And we've got men that narrow it down today. That commandment and every other commandment, they want to narrow it as much as they can. And every time your pastor tries to take a stand, there is opposition outside and sometimes opposition inside the church because you want to restrict it. We all want to restrict God's word. We don't want it to lay claim to all of our lives. We want to have a form of godliness, and even if our form is stricter than their form outside, we always want to have a little bit of breathing room for our will and our ways. We cannot do that. They took the seventh commandment and squeezed it, squeezed it down by limiting it, its overt actions to adultery. Then they would take the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, and they'd, go, they'd, they'd dig in the word of God. The scribes would just pour through it. They'd use their Strong's Concordance before Strong was born. They would use their concordance and pour through the Old Testament and see, how else can I get around the Seventh Commandment? Ah, Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Look at Moses gave a provision for divorce. As soon as the scribe found that, he, ha- he held a meeting. They had a tent revival where the preaching was from Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. If you'll divorce your wife, then you're free to marry another. And so the man went home, and his wife got up. He'd been married to her for 20 years. He had just seen a teenager that week on the streets, and he said, Listen, your body's getting a little sloppy. Get out of here. Here's your bill of divorcement. He'd write her out a piece of paper, and he'd pretend that he was the holiest man going because he had given her a writ of divorcement from Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, and I am not exaggerating. Right. There are cases that are documented in history by men that lived at the time of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said they believed in divorce for any cause, every cause. If you salted, if a wife salted her husband's food too much, he could divorce her for that and give her a bill of divorcement and then he could go get that teenager that he saw on the street or at the mall. Are you with me? That's what they would do with the Word of God. So look what Jesus is going to do before we get out of Matthew 5. 
He's going to say, if you divorce your wife and marry another, accept it, saving for the cause of fornication. And he puts the standard pretty high, doesn't he? Somehow that just doesn't match with salting your food too much. Committing fornication. If you do that, you're guilty of adultery. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ taking the seventh commandment and putting it back where God intended it. Not only is it the actual act, it's the thought. Because let's just reason for one second. If you're thinking about it, that means you're not, the only reason you're not doing it is you're lacking opportunity. Your heart's the same as if you had done it. And the man who went and divorced his wife for some late cause is breaking his marriage covenant in order to get another woman. He's not breaking his marriage covenant because she's some horrible thing. It's just to get another woman. And the Lord saw through all that. And that's how they take the Word of God today. And I'll tell you, we all have the temptation to want to do that to the Word of God in different ways, is to make it fit what little sins we would like to keep and what little liberties we think we have a right to. They hated the commandment, honor thy father and thy mother. They knew what it meant. See, they knew honoring father and mother didn't mean yes, sir, and no, sir. Yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. You know what they knew the word honor meant? They knew that honoring father and mother included some money. So what they come up with in a tradition? Corbin, it's a gift. We've already donated that to the temple. I know we're still using it, but upon our death it passes to the temple because we're so holy. We've given it to God. We can't help you. You know, there's whole sections of Scripture written about that. They took a tradition and overrode the Word of God. They took the Word of God and drew ungodly inferences from it. When the Bible said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, they assumed that that meant, Thou shalt hate thine enemy. But that isn't found in the Old Testament. And we're going to run into that in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is going to say, you have heard from your Pharisees that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh Uh-uh. I tell you to love your enemy. And do you know what? The Old Testament taught that. The Old Testament taught the same law of mercy, kindness, and love, even towards your personal enemy. If If you saw his ox got out of his fence, you saw his bull got out of his pasture, and you didn't like him, what were you supposed to do? Go get that bull and put it back in his pasture. I mean, that's all taught in the Old Testament. Our Lord Jesus Christ was magnificent, but he was hated. Those Pharisees crucified the Lord of glory because he taught the truth while they held the lies. And they were envious because guess what the common people wanted to hear? The truth of God's word. Would this help a common person right here who was sick of the pretensions of the Pharisee to hear in verse 20, if your righteousness isn't better than theirs, you're not going to be in the kingdom of heaven. Would that help you get started? Would that be a good warm-up? After you've watched these pompous men all your life make a pretense to righteousness? They emphasized what they wanted to emphasize. Jesus once told them, ye omit the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith, so that you can keep what you think is important, the paying of tithes on your herbs. Can you imagine paying tithes on the few herb bushes you have growing around your house? They were doing that meticulously. You should see them with their calculator sitting at the dining room table, calculating what they made from their herb bushes, 
paying tithe of anise, mint, and cumin. They're anise. I had eight ounces of it, so I owe the Lord, you know, three quarters of an ounce. Cumin. I got two pounds of that, so I owe the Lord three ounces. Matthew twenty three twenty three, And he said, you've omitted the weightier matters of the law. Judgment, mercy, and faith. What kind of judgment? Judgment that when Jesus would heal a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day, they would want to kill him for it. And he would say to them, Doth not every one of you draw his ox out of a ditch, take him out of the barn, and lead him to water on the Sabbath day? And why can't I heal a man? Every one of you, you circumcise on the Sabbath day by cutting a man. Why am I wrong for making a man every whit whole? That's the Lord Jesus Christ, Amen. and that's their righteousness. I mean, they worked at the... I've got more examples here than we have time for, but I have a whole pile of them because I wanted to show you how the Pharisees had worked the law of God over until it fit their little religion. And there's men able to do that, and the devil will help them. He's the father of all lies, and they corrupted the word of God to make it fit the way they wanted to live because they could be comfortable with their lifestyle in, in managing the word of God the way they did. That's why the Apostle Paul could come along and say, I was blameless in the law. Well, who couldn't be? If it was a Pharisee interpretation of the law, you could be blameless in the law. But then he said, the commandment came, the commandment came, thou shalt not lust. And it wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. When I, Romans chapter 7, when, when God revealed the commandment, thou shalt not covet to me clearly, I realized that we had kind of restricted that commandment. But when it came to me in power, I died. Sin revived, and I died. Because I was no longer blameless, because I saw the Word of God as it truly was. Amen. And we want to see it that way, Amen. and we want sin to die and us to revive. Amen. By obeying it. Amen. I could, oh, I could multiply the examples, and I'll multiply them in the outline, but... That's enough for right now on that particular point. We're looking at Matthew chapter 5. Let me tell you a few things about the law. We've been through the four verses. You know what the four verses mean now. We want our righteousness to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees. We don't want to modify the word of God at all to fit our little preferences or desires. We want to keep the least of God's commandments so that we can be great in the kingdom of heaven. We believe that every jot and tittle of it is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And we know that none of it has passed away without being fulfilled. And we have it in the English language in our King James Bibles. We believe all that. Let's think about a couple more things about the law. Look at Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. Now, how were we made sinners? Romans 5. How did, we, how did you become a sinner? By, the, by one man. One man's disobedience. Adam, our first father. Even before you were born, you were legally a sinner in Adam. Even before you were born, somebody will say, well, how can somebody be a sinner before they're born? Well, thank God the Lord's able to do that because I was also chosen in Christ before I was born. Amen. You know, when I was given an inheritance before I was born, it was promised to me in the covenant of grace that God made with the Lord Jesus Christ before I was born. Legally, in how God viewed me, I was, we became sinners by what Adam did. Romans chapter 5, that's verses 12 through 19. Verses 12 through 19, I preached it to you recently about the two Adams, is how we became sinners. But look at verse 20. Moreover, the law entered. Now, there was about 1,500 years. No, there wasn't. There was 2,000 years from Adam to Moses. 1,500 to the flood. 
2,000 years to Moses from Adam. And for, if, there's, if you want to be a dispensationalist, I'll let you be one. But you can only have three. From Adam to Moses, from Moses to John the Baptist, and from John the Baptist to the Lord comes. There's the three dispensations that the New Testament teaches. But for 2,000 years, men died. And then God, in his progressive revelation, brought Moses along and the children of Israel and revealed more through the law of Moses. And we're about to be told why God gave the law. So let's read it. The law of Moses, all those commandments, why did he do that? Moreover, the law entered, that the offense might abound. That the offense might abound. Oh, you mean God gave the law to make me look worse? You got it. You mean God gave the law to make me a sinner in case I didn't really believe the Adam thing? In case I needed to prove it myself that I was a sinner? Yes, yes, and yes. That's why God gave the law. Look at Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. Verse 13. Was then that which is good made death unto me? Is the law a good thing? Yes, it was a good law. Oh, if, if, listen, if a nation of people ever kept, ever kept the law perfectly, it'd be utop- what they call utopia on earth. If a group of people ever kept the law perfectly, it was a good law. Was then that which is good made death unto me? Did God make something good that caused me to die? Yes. God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. There's his explanation of the whole thing. He says in 12, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me. The law itself wasn't made death. Who, who made the law death? Who made the law a source of death? Was it the law itself? Or was it the person under the law? Who, who was it that, that the law exposed? Did the law expose itself as being an instrument of death by itself? Or was it us that were under it that had no power to keep it? It was us that were under it that couldn't keep it. And as soon as the law faces us and we understand it, as I said before, sin revives and I die, as the Apostle Paul said. For we know that the law is spiritual. Here's the explanation in verse 14. But I am carnal, sold under sin. That's the problem. That's the conflict. That's where the death comes from. It was a good thing. It should have wrought life, but it didn't. It brought death. Back to Romans 5 to see verse... Back to verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Oh, I wanted... I wanted 713, but sin that it might appear sin working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Romans 713, the law was to teach us that sin was exceeding sinful and that we were exceeding great sinners. And so Romans 520 tells us as to why we got the law, that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. God put us in the Garden of Eden and we sinned there through a perfect representative. And all of our, all of the, our fathers after Adam sinned for 2,000 years. Then God gave us a law in his progressive revelation of teaching us more about ourselves and about him. And we sinned horribly and miserably under that law through the children of Israel. Why was that law given? 
that the offense might abound, that what Adam did was true of all of us, and that we were sinners, and we wouldn't keep God's law, but where sin abounded, after the law showed us that sin was abounding and we were all hopeless, grace did much more abound. Amen. See, then we get to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was not going to come until we had had a good demonstration that we were entirely wicked and corrupt by the holy and spiritual and good law that God gave that we couldn't keep through our parents that were in the Jewish faith. Do you know what Galatians calls that whole thing? So the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Adam wasn't enough to convince you. You know, Cain and Abel were killing each other from the very first family. Was that a pretty great effect on what Adam and Eve did? And there was mayhem and murder in the world, and that's why Noah was in the ark, and the rest of the world drowned, because they were filled with violence from their youth, and every thought of their hearts was evil continually. But then the law came to show it to men, that when God favored a group of men and gave them everything that heart could wish, and gave them a a law that was holy, spiritual, and good, they'd still sin. And so was a schoolmaster leading us to the fact of something that we needed. It was God's schoolmaster to show us we need the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to have a representative that will come and stand in our place and obey God's law for us. And not only did he positively obey it for us, he suffered the consequences of that law and and died for us and saved us from the law. That where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. God sent a perfect substitute for us to live the perfect righteousness of the law and to suffer the just consequences of the law. And so we are in Christ, chosen in Him before the world began, and we are made holy by Him choosing us there before the world began. We're no longer under the law. And when when the Bible says we're no longer under the law, it means we're no longer under the legal claims the law has against us as sinners because Jesus Christ has freed us from that. We're under grace. You know, we obey now out of pure motive of love for the Lord Jesus Christ who died and did everything for us. It's no longer out of a do this or die. It's I died, will you do this? And what a difference that is. We're no longer under the law. We're under grace. You know, Jesus has already been a curse of the law for us. For cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. The law has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And oh, brethren, there's so many, there's so many things in the Bible, especially the book of Hebrews. You go to the book of Hebrews and find that about the old priesthoods passed away because we have a better priesthood. Those priests, do you know how Paul just takes those priests apart? What was one big problem they had? They sinned. That means they have to go in and offer for themselves. What else happened? They died. Then you've got to go get a new one that understands all your problems. I mean, you know, after you've come and brought lambs for the 200th time for one of your sins... One priest would get to know you as soon as he saw you on the road. He knew why you were coming. But then he dies, and you've got to go introduce yourself to a new one and hope that he'll, hope that he'll have compassion on you. But the Lord Jesus Christ came, who was tempted in all points like as we are, and he's always able to have compassion on us. Amen. And, and so the priesthood is overthrown. Oh, there's much more that can be said about that priesthood. They took blood in every single day, and it never put away sins. It never made the conscience altogether free. But the Lord Jesus Christ has come and shed His blood and given us a free conscience. We have a priest. He ever lives. He has one sacrifice. It's been made forever. 
and he sits at God's right hand, understanding us, because he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin, and understanding God just a little bit, because he is God. Now that's pretty good. And that's why we have the book of Hebrews. is to tell us that the law and all it said about priests is gone. Because there was another law about priests that came in the book of Psalms. I have sworn that I will make him a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So there's a new priesthood. Then there's a new covenant, new blessings, new benefits. And so we go through the book of Hebrews, and Paul comes to Hebrews 9, which I hope that some of you read last night, and Hebrews 9, and it said all those ordinances of divine service were figures and shadows of what was coming until the time of Reformation. And then they passed away during that 40-year period between John and the destruction of Jerusalem. They passed away. There was no more altar, priesthood, temple left, except a temple in heaven and a priest in heaven and an altar in heaven where the sacrifice has already been accepted. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, we are citizens of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, beneficiaries of the everlasting and new covenant of Jesus Christ. And next Sunday, we'll have the Lord's Supper again where we take up the cup. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. Not the Old Testament. You know what was written in the last couple of weeks? About the Passover. When do you keep the Passover? How do you keep the Passover? I don't want to keep that Passover at all. I want to keep the New Testament Passover of the Lord Jesus Christ just the way He said to do it. We're not under the law. We've been saved from it. You know, there's a, there's a new holy nation. There's a new holy nation. You know, you go read about that new holy nation in 1 Peter chapter 2. And Peter is writing to Jews and he says, But ye are a holy nation, which were not the people of God, but are now the people of God. Now, now wait, a, wait a minute. The Jews have always been the people of God. Not all of them. Not all of them. He's quoting from Hosea just like Paul did in Romans chapter 9. It was said unto them, ye are not the people of God. When God turned away from them in the book of Hosea, chapter 1, chapter 2, but in the Lord Jesus Christ, he restored his relationship to many in Israel that were the true Israel of God. You were not a people, but now are ye a people. You're a royal priesthood. You, you mean if I'm from Levi? No. If you're from Simeon or Judah, it doesn't matter. You're a royal priesthood Amen. because you're a king and a priest through the Lord Jesus Christ because he's made us all kings and priests in his kingdom. Now, is that a lowly position to have in the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Are you a woman today and you wonder about your lowly place? You're a king in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We're heirs together of the grace of life. We have our roles in this church. We have our roles in marriage. We have our roles in society. But in the legal consideration of God and in the house of God, as far as partaking of his eternal inheritance, we are all kings and priests equally. There is neither male nor female. Bond nor free, Greek nor barbarian. Praise his great and glorious name. Amen. No rednecks or Yankees. Right. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. Because we're not under that law that made terrible distinctions. Horrible distinctions. We're free in Christ Jesus. Oh, so many things could be said about all of that. You know, the dietary laws have passed away, haven't they? We're under a new covenant. 
You don't have to go to the Old Covenant unless you go back there for explanation to see what the Jews were held liable for. You know, all, the, all those chapters in Leviticus about what you could and could not eat, how many verses does it take Paul to undo them all? 1 Timothy chapter 4, every creature of God is good and to be received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. Bring me the anchovies, bring me the shrimp, bring me the pepperoni for my pizza. Can you imagine a pizza without pepperoni? What if your pizza had to have lamb on it? Try it. Sausage. Every creature of God is good. But you know what? In the two restaurants that our family still has, let's call them anchors. In the two restaurants our family still has, and the Lord's going to free us from it. We're excited about it because we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. We almost need sunglasses now. What happened on Friday? What is Friday called in the calendar? Good Friday. What do you think people were eating? I, I heard uh, my second son muttering when I was in the restaurant there on Friday about all the tuna fish that he was having to prepare and sell. Because, see, everybody was coming in wanting a vegetarian sandwich, a vegetarian pizza, or a tuna fish sandwich. Remember that, son? See, Daddy hears and Daddy remembers. Tuna fish. See, you can gorge on fish, but don't you dare eat meat because it's Friday. And it's Good Friday. If you're going to be good Catholic on Good Friday, you have to be real good and eat fish or vegetarian. And we have the Word of God. The Seventh-day Adventists write me. Do you know what the Seventh-day Adventists are? They're vegetarians. Why? Because that little afflicted woman named Ellen Harmon also bought into vegetarianism. Remember, she sent her men to Battle Creek, Michigan to start the Kellogg's. That was the name of the men. Two brothers named Dr. and Dr. Kellogg. And they started Kellogg's. Nobody ever poured gravel and bark in a bowl and poured milk over it and ate it for breakfast until 1900. No one had ever dreamed of it. They wanted real food. And do you know where all that came from? Because they hated meat. Because meat stirs up your passions and causes self-pollution. Please understand me or you're going to force me to get more graphic. That is why they created it. That's where cereal came from. It didn't come from anybody that knew anything about health. It came from somebody that believed that a man is defiled by what goes into his mouth. Because they believed that meat heated up the passions of the human body. And to get rid of pocket pool, you needed to serve cereal for breakfast. It's disgusting. You know what the Bible does? We wonder, well, what about all those dietary laws? What about the chapter after chapter I read in the Old Testament? We're under the New Covenant. First Timothy chapter 4. Every creature of God is good. Carve up your steak. That was always approved. But go ahead and have any creature. The Lord is so merciful to us. We, he's delivered us from the Sabbath. He has delivered us from the dietary laws. He's delivered us from the national laws because the, the nation and the church are no longer one. They're two separate things. We've been saved from a whole, so much. We don't need a priesthood. We have a priest. And if you need a priest to assist him, that will make intercession to him, you are that priest. You don't need me. It's wonderful what the Lord has done and given us in the New Testament. As I conclude, let me just say this. We want to see the Lord Jesus Christ in every part of the Bible. You know, Jesus said, as we looked at a couple of verses only, 
He said, they are they which testify of me. He said, they spoke concerning me, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. They spoke about me, and I told you those things while I was alive. We want to see Christ in the Bible. When we read the Bible, we want to look for the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Jews did this with the Bible. Strapped it on their arms. Strapped it on their forehead. But they didn't want to obey it. The Catholics. Kiss the Bible. But they don't want to obey it. They make up all their own traditions against the Bible. We don't want to kiss it. We don't want to revere it as much as we want to obey it. Because the highest, the highest exaltation we can give the Bible is to obey it. It's not enough to talk about we believe the King James Bible and rant and rave and yell and scream and defend and pick on every other version. We show our reverence for the Word of God by keeping it. You know, they, they worship Mary. Do you know what the greatest way you can contend against that is? Catholics worship Mary. When Jesus was approached with Mariolatry for the first time, he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. Amen. That, those are the true blessed people in the kingdom of heaven, those that hear the word of God and keep it. And let's keep it. Let's read that verse that says, The least commandment is how I grade men. All of you fathers that are teaching your families, you neglect, compromise, or leave out the least commandment, you are least in the kingdom of heaven. Let's be great in the kingdom of heaven. By everything that God's word shows us, let's do it. And let's do it with zeal. Let's do it enthusiastically. And let's do it completely. And let's do it consistently. And let's teach it to our children our children's children. That we might be great in the kingdom of heaven. Because if our righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of scribes, Pharisees, and fundamentalists around us, we'll no wise enter into it. Because we're not showing the character of the children of God. Deuteronomy chapter 12 tells us that we're to keep the commandments that God has given us and not add to them nor take away from them. Jesus told his apostles to teach all things whatsoever I have commanded thee. That doesn't allow for any more and it doesn't allow for any less. We're told that we ought to esteem all things concerning his precepts concerning all things to be right and to hate every false way. That's got to be our spirit. Right down to the least commandments. We have to ignore and reject those who call us too picky. Or we're going to deserve the criticism of our Lord. The love of Jesus is keeping his commandments. If ye love me, keep my commandments. That is how we love the Lord Jesus Christ. They define it today. Just like the Pharisees redefined the Bible in Jesus' day, they define it today. If you love Jesus, then you're going to love everyone else no matter what they believe. That's what I get hit with. Over and over and over again. That is how watered down and compromising religion is today. Haven't they ever read the New Testament? Jesus was ferocious with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the lawyers. He tore them apart. He humiliated them in front of their own people. He called them vipers and serpents. And how can you escape the damnation of hell? And I'm going to bring upon you all the righteous blood shed from Abel unto Zacharias that was slain by your altar. They don't see that one. We want to love the Lord Jesus Christ who has come and redeemed us from the curse of the law. But he has told us, because I have redeemed you from the curse of the law, because I died for you and in your place, will you live for me? 
And that's what it means to keep the commandments for a New Testament saint. The Apostle Paul said, I thus judge that if, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that if he died for all, then they which live should henceforth not live unto themselves, but unto him that lived and died for them. If Jesus Christ has died for us and redeemed us from all the curse of the law, we should want to live for him. And how do we live for him? We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. We get a new mindset. And we are not conformed to this world. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And we are nothing like this compromising generation of Christians. May the Lord help us to stand and be faithful to the word of God and every jot and tittle of it until he comes. And believe me, he is coming because there are some jots and some tittles that say he's coming. And I believe them right along with the rest. He's fulfilled most of it. But what's not fulfilled is better than you can imagine. And let's pray and live for that day. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.